What I'm hearing now more than ever is they said, yeah, kind of changed my mind. Um, either I'm not going to be able to exit with as much money as I thought I was, meaning it's not retirement money, or uh, in more cases, it's, you know, I'm going to cash out pretty good, but, you know, I'm not going to retire fully ever. And the parts of the business I like doing is the things that I would like to do going forward. No one's going to hire me, you know, so who, who's out there that'll pay a premium, allow me to continue to own part of the business, do the parts of the business that I like, and then take me out at the appropriate time when I'm ready. Well, there's only one buyer that will do that, and that's your management team. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Carl Gould. Carl is a worldwide leading authority on business and entrepreneurship. His company, Seven Stage Advisors, helps organizations to grow to the next level. He's an entrepreneur who's built three multi-million dollar businesses by the age of 40. Seven Stage Advisors has mentored and launched over 5,000 businesses. He has advised over 100 of the Inc. 500 slash 5,000 fastest growing companies. Some of the companies he's helped are Walgreens, Walmart, American Idol, USA Olympic Track, IBM, McGraw-Hill, and the U.S. Army. Uh, Carl created the furthest uh, reaching business mentoring organization in the world, and his methodologies are practiced in 35 countries. He's trained and certified or accredited over 7,000 business coaches and mentors since 2002. Carl's also written multiple books on the subject of business strategy, leadership, and sustainable growth. He co-authored Blueprint for Success with Stephen Covey and Ken Blanchard. And uh, his best-selling book, uh, The Seven uh, Stages of Small Business Success, lays out a formula for hypergrowth. And more important to me than all of that amazing background is that Carl Gould is a friend and an entrepreneur's organization colleague of mine who I've known for over a decade. And I'm so excited to have you on the show, Carl. Hey, Corey, thanks so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I, I love that we get to kick this, kick this around. And uh, I know how much of an expert you are on, the, on this side of the on this side of the subject, so it's, it's uh, really cool to be here. That's great. So listen, but um, before we get into all the amazing stuff you've done now and the deals you've done your, on your own and the deals you've advised clients on, I want to take you back uh, to when you were a little kid growing up. What did you want to be? Because my guess is a, uh, you know, a consultant and deal guy and entrepreneur might not have been hit when you were you know, six or eight or 10 or 12 years old, but, but you tell me, maybe I'm wrong. Well, no, I mean, the job I have today as a business coach and business growth advisor, the way it exists today, didn't exist when I was a kid. So I couldn't even have dreamed <laughs> of, of my job today when I was that old. But, I, you know, I'll tell you, six to 10 years old, I wanted to be the center fielder for the New York Yankees. Um, you know, I wanted to play for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, uh, but yeah, my, sports was my thing when I, was a, when I was a kid. I used to do, play a lot of sports, uh, baseball, basketball, football. And always dreamed of, uh, and I was a big Yankee fan at the time. So, 
that was certainly on my list. So I get the Yankee thing because you grew up in the New York, New Jersey area, and uh, and uh, even though I'm a Met fan, I'll, I'll I, I can I can acknowledge the Yankee thing. Where the Miami Dolphins come from? All right, so it sounds crazy now, but very logical when I explain it. So my my dad, huge Joe Namath fan, big New York Jet fan, and yeah. we used to go see the Jets play. And I used to sit there and watch this team from Florida kick the snot out of the Jets (laughs) twice a year. And I'd say, Dad, why are we rooting for the Jets? This Dolphin team seems pretty good. So that was Bob Greasy and Jim Kick and all that. And so I fell in love with the Dolphins, started following them. They bring on Dan Marino, good for another decade at least. I haven't been good in a while, but I still stick with them. And so I I got to be a Dolphins fan. Um, And uh, so that's how it kind of started for me. I love it. I love it. Okay. And one other question looking back, what was your first real business? However you define that. First real business, eight years old, um, paper route, uh, followed by my first real job, which was sweeping up a pallet factory at nine years old. Uh, <laughs> but I was, I got started early. At, yeah. Eight years old, I was running my own paper route. And that was back in the day when you collected money, when you had to go door to door to sell yourself. So that was my first real business. Oh, I love it. I love it. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, you know about about deals. Um, so f- first of all, I know that you sold a couple of companies of, of your own, yeah. and then also in your coaching practice, you work with countless businesses that have done deals of various types. So uh, so so jump in a little bit. Maybe talk a little bit about uh, you know your companies first, and you know what you had, and uh, and and how you sold them, and any lessons you got from those experiences. So the first, yeah, I, so I had a landscaping company, which I sold. And then subsequently, I had a construction company that I sold. And they were similar in that I, um, I sold them to competitive companies. Uh, there were people I knew, actually. And, um, and they were, um, I, I felt the time was right. I, I was dispassionate about those two businesses because they weren't my really my true calling. And um, I, I felt like I got a good deal for each one of them. However, the I probably didn't get the best deal I could have because it was I was leaving at a time that was more convenient to me than probably convenient for the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, I got the most out of it when I got out of it. I was a little bit more purposeful when I built the uh, when I sold the construction company. Um, my fir- because I, I I knew I wanted to do coaching and. You know, I had a little mantra with my advisor at the time, and I said, I want to hang up the hammer, you know. And so the business was much more of a well-run machine um, that was more sellable. Um, the, uh, my landscaping company, I built on hustle. And I had built, uh, because, you know, you wouldn't have used the terms MRR and ARR back then, monthly recurring revenue and, and annual recurring revenue. But that's what I had. I had a, la- a landscape maintenance company where we had long-term contracts. I was able to sell the contracts. I was able to sell the relationships and got a premium for that. Some of my project work, uh, but that, but I learned very quickly in my landscaping company that my MRR was worth three to four times what my project revenue was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I was winning that game on hustle. And what made the landscaping uh, deal a good deal was I was able to sell my recurring revenue, which was excellent um, at the time. Um, and that's what really drove the value of that deal. The construction company was mostly project-based work, but I owned, I was on the other side of the transaction. I bought the land, owned the land. Um, I had a log home dealership as well as a modular home dealership. 
uh, distributorship. And so I had more assets to sell and I had deals where I, I was able to sell off the value of the deals that I had. And in both cases, I had built up a brand which was stronger than the people who had bought from me. So I agreed to stay on and receive a commission for any referrals I got because I understood and I learned on the first deal, even though I sell my business, the people that I sold called me to say, well, we want to stay with you. And, and because of the advertising I'd been doing at the time, people still called me, right? Even though, you know, the owner bought the business, they had the number, people were still finding their way to me. So I, what I learned in the first deal was I said, hey, listen, people are still going to call me. I am happy to stay on and be a referrer. Or if it's convenient enough, sell and close the deal. Won't take too much effort. You know, it's not a long sales cycle in, in these two businesses. So let's strike a commission deal or a referral deal because I truly don't want to be in either of these businesses anymore. But I do know people are going to call me. So I'm happy to be an ambassador. I want it to go well for you. And, and so we were, what, what I think worked well in both deals that I'm glad that we did was we worked out an arrangement where I can participate in any new business I sent them. And in the first deal, that went on for a few years. When I sold my landscaping company, there were only a few companies like us around. And that was the early 90s in our area. So that actually worked out really well for the next few years. And I made um, you know, significant side hustle money, if you will, um, just answering the phone, you know, answering questions for the prospect and reassuring them that the person that bought my company was a good place to go. And I, I had said to them, tell me what you plan to charge and I can give them a good range. And believe me, I'll tee them up well. So when they get to your sales folks or your estimators, they're going to, it's going to be your job to lose. Let's put it that way. And that worked out really well. So I'm, I'm glad that we did that. And, and the, the transition of power was very peaceful, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's, so that's great. And there's so much in, even in that few minutes of, you know, those two experiences, there's, there's so much, so many lessons in there. And I'll, if I could just pull out a few of them that I heard for the listeners, you know, what, one is, uh, you know, going maybe in a little bit of reverse order is to say, hey, you know, there's still value that I, you know, that I can bring and I should get paid for that value post, uh, uh, you know, transaction. And of course, the, the buyer is willing to do that because if you're going to get calls, you know, they may not necessarily get those calls. If they're coming to you, they're coming to you because of you and your relationship and, the, and, and what you've done. And that's the other thing you talked about is building a brand, right? So, so you, you built a brand which increased the value. You then had uh, additional ability to leverage that brand even post-closing and you, and you cut a referral you know, deal to be able to capitalize on that. You also were able to sell the company at a higher uh, uh, multiple because you had built the brand. You also mentioned recurring revenue and the value yeah. difference between that and project fees, which is true. Across, I mean, I do a lot of work in the financial services industry and uh, you know, and, and one of the reasons why uh, investment advisors, for example, uh, you know, uh, do well is that they have this, you know, recurring revenue uh, uh, yeah, model right. uh, uh, where they have, you know, if they charge assets in the management and, and fee-based business where they have an asset in the management charge is worth more than commission-based business that brokers do, which is transactional. Um, so it's the same kind of thing. So there's the additional value of recurring revenue. Uh, and then you mentioned something else, which I, I want to delve into a little bit, you know, where you said, hey, I maximized the value at the time, but basically because I wanted out of this business and I wanted to do something else, which was more of my calling, uh, you know, you alluded to the fact that you didn't fully maximize what could have been. And that relates to the conversation of, hey, timing 
preparation for a deal and how you maximize value. And I know that's part of what you actually help clients with now as a coach. Yeah. And, and what I encourage my clients, because a lot of times people will sell because they have fatigue. We call it CEO fatigue. You know, they're tired. Just get me out of this. I can't imagine myself doing this one more day, Carl. And, and, I, and I get it because I was there, but I learned, but you know, what I learned was you're, even though you're out, you're not, you're not fully out. And if you're going to want to be fully out right away, you are likely to leave a lot of value on the table. And so what I learned in the second deal was uh, in the first deal, I thought I was out as of the, the date of exchange. The day that they owned my business, I was gone. And I stayed on, like I said, and I did sales. And, but I, had I thought it through better and said, let me think of the exit as two years from the, the exchange date. You know, buyer takes possession of my company. Let me just think in terms of two more years, two more years, two more seasons, whatever, two more buying, selling cycles, whatever, so that I can, so I don't, you know, so my finish line is way past the, the liquidity date, liquidity event. And I can participate in the success of that company as requested or as required, because there's often a lot of opportunity post-transaction. And here's what a lot of people you know, fail to realize is when you sell, the day you're out, you're out of the part that you hate the most, which is the day-to-day -day activities, which is the day-to-day -day headache. The day after you're out, you get to focus on the part that you like the most and is the easiest for you, which is just talking about the business. So, but by the time you realize that if you didn't structure the deal well or you emotionally, you, you felt like that exit date would, coincided with the exchange date, then you missed out on the part that you actually probably would enjoy. And that is a regret a lot of my clients have. You know, now, don't get me wrong. They just cashed out and they just put a big check in their pocket. So it's not like they're, you know, grief ridden. But when they look back on it, it's one of the regrets they have. They're like, yeah, you know what? I should have should have managed myself a little bit better at the end. And I think I actually would have enjoyed that. You know, yeah. so that's what I learned second time around. And so I actually enjoyed the exit a lot more. I got to participate a little bit more in the parts I liked. So let's talk, let's stay on the topic of timing and talk about it on the other side, which is the, the timing of the actual closing of the sale. So not the post-closing, but, you know, the, because, you know, you alluded to something where sometimes people just, yeah, they get burnt out, they get fed up, they get tired, whatever. The, the economy starts to dip and they're like, oh, I don't want to go through this. And then they look to sell and, you know, obviously options are more limited and value uh, creation is more limited. Um, if you're, you know, if you feel like you want to be out in, you know, a few months or something, or even, you know, even six months, then if you have a plan a couple of you know, years in advance of even closing. So talk to me about your experience with that. Cause I know you work with a lot of companies who, uh, who even, you know, uh, your ongoing coaching, you may know from earlier, from a much earlier stage that they do have an exit plan, but it could be many years in advance. So what's the you know, advantage of that? Right, right, right. So yeah, we, we very, we are very much fans of, you know, planning your exit well in advance. Because So Corey, here's the thing that we're hearing a lot is um, in, it, 10 years ago, what I would have heard more than ever is, Carl, help me build a business. I want to sell. I want out. I want to put my toes in the sand at a beach somewhere, play some golf, whatever. What I'm hearing now more than ever is they said, yeah, kind of changed my mind. Um, either 
I'm not going to be able to exit with as much money as I thought I was, meaning it's not retirement money. Or uh, in more cases, it's, you know, I'm going to cash out pretty good, but, you know, I'm not going to retire fully ever. And the parts of the business I like doing is the things that I would like to do going forward. No one's going to hire me, you know, so who, who's out there that'll pay a premium, allow me to continue to own part of the business, do the parts of the business that I like, and then take me out at the appropriate time when I'm ready. Well, there's only one buyer that will do that, and that's your management team. So what we're getting is, can you help my team, show my team, you know, how to run this business without me so I can only do the parts that I like, or I only have to do the parts I like, and then, you know, they can buy me out and it, or, or parts of it, and if they don't buy me out fully, I'll find somebody who will buy the rest of the team out, but rest of the, uh, my shares out. And so we're hearing that more than ever. So by the further in advance that you plan it out, the more control and the more options you're going to have as you exit, because you're coming from a point of strength and you're not, un, you're not being forced out and you're, there's no, it's important to you, but it's not tremendously urgent. So right. you keep your options open as much as possible. And if you're starting, and we are also big fans of, of um, including your management team and your leadership team in on the exit. Because, you know, one of the first things, if I'm buying a business, first thing I, I ask is how, how tied to it is the owner? And if I hear things like, oh, open door policy, oh, the owner, what a great guy or gal, they're so awesome, you know, what would we do without them? I hear businesses too reliant on the owner. If I hear things like, I gotta be honest with you, I don't know the owner all that well, they're never around, you know, they're not the nicest person in the world, I'm not my cup of tea, but I still work there, I hear, wow, awesome. They, they figured out, they've, they've got a setup where this business can run without them, I'm willing to pay a premium for that company. So the sooner I get my management team on board and they're part of the plan and they know what, know what's going on. And I've got a team that accepts the plan, the more options I'm going to have and the more own, the more I'm going to get. Yeah. And that's great. And I've seen that, you know, in fact, we talked about that a little bit with, um, uh, with, uh, uh somebody I think who, you know, from a New York, uh, colleague of mine, Damon Gersh, who was a former chapter president in New York, like right. I was. And, uh, and Damon was on episode, um, uh, episode, I think it was 23. And, uh, so people listening, they can go back to episode 23 and, you know, and Damon did that with his management team and, and really it gave him the option to either sell or to have a great business that, that his management team runs and he could be involved in as little or as much as he wants. And frankly, you know, he's at the point now where he's not going to sell because he's, he's found some, um, some people, some of his colleagues that he knows who've sold, they've done very well financially, but then they're sort of like, now what? And, he, and they're like investing in other people's companies. He's like, he's like, you know what? I don't want to invest in other people's companies. I have a great company here. I'll invest in mine. I'll have my management team run it. Yeah, there'll be a point at which I sell it, but not yet. So getting the management team up to speed helps whether you're going to sell now or not sell. So yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing more and more, Corey, is there's, um, you know, if, if you are the kind of person that, you know, initially was passionate about your business, you're under no particular urgency to sell, and you've taught your managers to run the business, so you don't have to do the day-to-day -day stuff that you're tired of, um, you'll be less resentful of your own business, and you may even want to stay in the business. Um, and we're hearing that actually more and more. 
Yeah, that, so that, that totally makes sense. And it gives you options, right? You know, I mean, you, you're in a stronger position to sell the company because the company is not dependent upon you if you do that. And you have less need to sell the company because, you know, you have less uh, personal involvement on it. So, you know, options are always a great thing when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, and if you're not under the gun, people know that. And, and we've all tried to buy something where, you know, you can tell the seller is very motivated and you can negotiate more. Uh, but if, you, if you're with somebody who you know has a strong asset and isn't under any pressure to sell it, then before you know it, all of a sudden, guess what? You're, you're paying their price, not your price. That's great. So, Carl, let's, I know you have a lot of experience in, in, um, in working with companies uh, as a coach in deals and uh, also you know, even helping them um, structure uh, the deals in terms of, uh, and, and working with companies, you know, I know from, from, uh, our past conversations, even working with some companies where there are, you know, nice deals that have been done without significant capital up front either, which is something I always say that, you know, it's a myth that, I mean, yes, listen, if you have capital, you have more options to do more types of deals, but it, but it is a myth that you need capital to be able to do deals. There are all kinds of deals you can do with little to no capital. Uh, and so talk a little bit about some of the structures that you've seen with the various companies that you've, uh, you've worked with. Yeah, so we're, we're often asked to grow our clients' companies. And as you said before, we will put together an organic growth plan and an acquisition plan. And so we'll, we'll work frequently with our clients on, on multiple acquisitions. And, you know, we'll say something like we're going to buy a business once every year, once every two years. But we'll, we'll get into some cadence, and that's what we'll, we'll strive towards. And um, we are big fans of looking at the deal. And as you know, and I'm sure many of your other guests have said, is the seller will overvalue their business. Yes. You know, we, we look at our, our formula is 60% ARV. So 60% after repair value. And that's a, a term we're borrowing from the real estate world. In other words, we look at the business and say, it's probably worth 60% of what they're asking. And what investment would we have to make in it to make sure that the company continues to be functional and hits its targets. And then we might deduct from there, right? So that's kind of where our analysis takes us. And we say, all right, can we get this business for that? Now, so we'll make our offer somewhere in that 60%-ish range. And then the owner will say, oh, yeah, I'm real. I need a million. I can't take 600,000, right? I got to have a million or I'm not leaving. Oh, okay. Well, then why don't we do this? Why don't we pay you you know, um, we'll give you a down payment right now, uh, a small down payment, like call it 10%. And then we'll pay you out of cash flow for a period of time. And if you stay on and add value, if you stay on and make sure the transition to all the new clients stay, you know, uh, works, then we'll, we'll continue to pay you value for any, for example, any, any new client you bring on, we'll pay you a percentage for a set amount of years. Um, if you hold the note, right? And so we don't have to go to a bank, you hold the note. So we have working capital. Instead of us paying the interest to a bank, we'll pay the interest to you. And so that's how you're going to get your million dollars. You're going to get your million million dollars from 600,000 worth of, you know, uh, payment for the assets of the company, maybe two or 300,000 for extra value you bring by re-enlisting or, or re-enrolling clientele, you know, helping us sign those new contracts or any new business you bring, plus the interest we would have paid to somebody else, we're going to pay to you. So there's a million dollars. You know, they will, you know, if they're willing to get creative, they'll say, okay, I like that. I see how it's going because even though if they, let's say they asked a million dollars, 
they're getting people who are offering them less than a million dollars. So they see in us a path to a million bucks, you know, and the longer they stay on, the more value they bring, the more that we're happy to, to bring them into. So we'll actually, more that we're happy to pay them. So we'll actually show them a path to make more than their asking price. By the time they're collecting interest, by holding the note, extra value in commissions and, um, you know, val- additional uh, value for helping maintain the house accounts. So we'll look at those items and see if we can craft a deal where there's a scenario or a path to them making more than what they asked for. And, and that's, a, you know, getting creative like that is crucial because, listen, we, you know, we all know, you know, I've had prior discussions, anybody who does deals knows this, as you said, that, you know, it's very common for uh, owners of companies, especially entrepreneurs who built a company from nothing and have been in it for years to overvalue the company. Because, you know, I, I remember I, uh, I, I, I think it was, I think it was an article I wrote or something else quoted in where, uh, you know, I, I was pretty harsh and I said, listen, you know, smart buyers don't care whether you created your company in, in, in five years or 25 years. So and now there is some brand value potentially, you know, of being around longer. Right. But separate from that, you know, they're going to look at your, they're going to look at your financials, right? And, yeah. you know, uh, you know, the fact that you work 80 hours for 25 years to create X, if somebody else, you know, did that in, you know, in five years outside the longevity of the brand, which is a factor, you know, the fact that you work twice as hard for three times as long is not going to play a big role in what a buyer is willing to pay. Because, you know, the bottom line is what is, where did it show up in your, you know, in your numbers and in your potential? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's um, the, um, the right buyer I mean, let's just go back, forget whether they're the right buyer or the wrong buyer. The buyer doesn't have the emotional investment in the company that you do. Right. And, and they're, they can't pay you for the past. They can only pay you for the present and the guarantee that, well, you know, as much of the future that you can guarantee through contracts and agreed upon uh, revenue streams and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, they have to value it that way. So it survives. Yeah, absolutely. And that's often a disconnect and getting, getting sellers realistic about valuation is, uh, is, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes a journey and, and listen, sometimes, you know, if they're out there enough and they get enough offers that are much lower, the market eventually tells them, but you know, but it takes them some time. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, um, you know, when, when a, uh, when somebody bought a house for a lot of money and the market goes down, uh, it usually takes them a while to be willing to sell it at a lower price. Cause they don't, you know, they, they've got to get, um, the market's got to teach them for a while as it sits on the market for a year or two. <laughs> I put a new kitchen in, I re- redid the basement. Doesn't there, isn't there value in that? But you, that's one of the reasons why we like to break down the deal and show, show the seller the multiple ways they're going to make money because you're right. The market will teach them that they have overpriced their asset and nobody's coming back with a path to their retail price, to their retail ask. But we are, yeah. we're saying, it, if you want to get creative, we'll give you every dollar you're asking for, but you're not going to get all the dollars up front in a check. And nobody's offering you that. Let's, let's get real. Nobody's offering you that because if they were, you'd have taken it. We're still talking because nobody is offering you that. So we're legit. We will help you get that retail asking price. Here's how we get there. Yeah. So what are some of the industries in which I know you have clients in a lot of different uh, industries, but why don't you give the listeners idea of uh, where your clients are and, and what some of the industries you've done deals in are? Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're industry agnostic as far as the advisory. Um, and so we work with every, everyone everywhere. But we've got, for, as far as the deals we've done, we've been in uh, marketing, uh, marketing and event planning uh, companies. 
um, uh, messenger services, um, a, a fuel, fuel delivery, like mo think mobile gas station. Um, we've been in landscaping and contracting, done a number of deals in the contracting industry. Um, and we've also been in uh, uh, technology companies. So on the buy side and on the sell side. Oh, that's great. So that's a, that's a big variety. And, you know, and, and there is, there's, I mean, there are interesting specific things, but there's so much that co that's common in deals across industries, right? I mean, if you know how to do deals, you know how to do deals. It is. Yeah, I, you're right. The, um, and the key is how well has the seller prepared their business for that event? As you said, how, how well in advance, but the, you know, it comes down to how much of that revenue relies on the owner versus not. And, you know, I'm sure you've, you've heard, you, you, the listeners have heard it, so you're going to hear it again, everyone, is you want to get to recurring revenue because not all profit dollars are created equal. And our expression, I heard it years ago, I love it, is cash is king, but recurring cash is King Kong, right? <laughs> and so in the deal. So, um, and so you want to have as much recurring revenue um, as possible. So Work on those contracts with your existing customers. You know, what if you can get them involved in a membership or subscription-based or there's some sort of retainer arrangement, you know, much like a, an advisor would, you know, or your product is being paid over time, you know, that all those dollars, take, those, take your regular project-based earned revenue and multiply that by three, four. You know, sometimes you can get, you can get a tremendous amount more per dollar um, when it's recurring revenue. That's great. So let's talk about, let's move to another area because I know you also have uh, experience in, in, with, with franchising and working with, uh, you know, with uh, franchisees, franchisors. So talk a little bit about that model and your experience with it and what people should look out for and be aware of in franchise models. Well, um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're franchising your business, it's a wonderful way to flip to that recurring revenue and have control of the brand and give you some scale. So, you know, and what we, what we recommend if you're, if you're going to be a franchisor and, and this, you, your attorney will hate you for this. They're going to say, what is it crazy? You have any idea what this is? And the answer is yes. And I still want to do it. Okay. And we suggest that the franchisor, whenever possible, collects all the money and then pays the franchisee, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. We don't let the franchisee collect the money, then pay us our royalty. We want to book all of that retail revenue and then pay the, um, pay the franchisee their, their part, their 93% or 91% after fees, you know, each week or month or whatever does two things. One, your franchise is a truly a business in a box, which what you promised them in the beginning, but by booking the revenue, you are, you, you, the value of your franchise just went skyrocketing through the roof because you're not the person collecting, you know, $100,000 worth of royalties during the course of the year. Every time you bring a, a franchisee on, your top line revenue is growing by a million dollars a year, 15, 1.5 million, 600,000, whatever the number is. But imagine walking into your bank with that, you know, saying, hey, listen, I bought on, you know, 15 new franchisees and, you know, our revenue was up 15 million over last year. Right. It's just like you're you're a, you're an entirely different company and you have signaled to the marketplace that you have full control of your concept. So that's a that's a big one that we like to see. And I understand all the problems that come with it and they're all worth it. 
<laughs> so so, so let, let, let's talk about some of the like industries that works in, because obviously, listen, uh, you know, if you're in a food, you know, take, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you, know, you, you do the next McDonald's, right? Um, you know, people coming in, they're paying cash, you have registers, whatever. Obviously, the franchisee in certain types of businesses has to be able to collect, you know, uh, the revenue, right? But but in, in a lot of businesses, that's not the case. So give the uh, listeners some examples of the types of uh, franchises where the franchisor can control uh, the revenue stream. Yeah. So the, um, uh, we, we, you know, 10 years ago, it would have absolutely been a different conversation because of how we collect payments. But even, even in a um, restaurant environment, you know, most people swipe a credit card. Yeah. Debit a credit card. That's right. You can control that. Yep. POS, the POS system goes right to the central, the, the franchisor's central bank who does all the accounting, does the disbursements. It's, it's, it feels the same, but what you've done is you've just taken out the whole accounting piece so the franchisee doesn't have to, the day they start be, you know, in that concept, become a bookkeeper. You know what I right, mean? Right. So, um, so you can do it in just about any uh, business. And we've seen it in professional services, home improvement, uh, food. Um, you know, there's going to be, the more cash that's involved, the harder it is going to be to do. Um, but the, the more credit cards that are involved, the easier it is to do. So, um, you know, uh, hair salons, um, you know, blow dry bars, those sorts of things. So we've seen it where you can control it. There are a couple of industries where it's a little harder because of regulate, because of how things are regulated. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you're doing something that might be in the medical field, as an example, there's some HIPAA compliance. There are some where you might get tripped up a little bit, but for the most part, um, you should be able to, as long as it's the majority of the revenue is coming in via credit card or wire, you should be able to control it. Love it. So, so listen, most businesses, you know, I say this uh, when I have people on who do um, uh, financing, you know, who are venture capitalists, that kind of thing. I say, I say, you know, the far, far, far majority of businesses are never going to be funded, right? Certainly not VC funded, whatever. That's true. Right. And, the, and the truth is the far majority of businesses are not going to be franchises either. Um, in terms of being Correct. franchisors, right? So, but there are certain businesses that can really lend themselves to it, not only in terms of industry, but also, you know, in terms of the way they can be replicated, right? So talk to a little bit about what makes a good, you know, who, what types of businesses should be considering uh, as at least one of the options being a franchisor going that route? Sure. So you're in, in almost all cases, when we look at a company in the beginning, almost regardless of what industry they're in, restaurant, home improvement, you know, um, uh, professional services, you name it, the business is likely too complicated to franchise in its current form. Right. And you typically have to, you, you peel off the part of the business that is easily trainable, replicatable, and can be profitable. So well, a couple of, a couple of, um, uh, you know, general rule of thumb. One is, can you train somebody on the franchise system in 90 days? So can you bring them up to speed on that part of the business? So if I walk into a restaurant and it has a sports bar with a bunch of craft beers on one side and, and, a, and an extensive menu, I can't train that company up in 90 days. I know there's some out there. There's, there are some, you know, sports bar, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and they are successful. But you know, um, for the most part, you are, you would take one aspect of that business, the burger bar, you know, the, you, you know, the wing, just the wings, you know, um, and you would simplify the menu, um, you know, for logistics reasons, as well as staffing and training, you would simplify the model down to what could I train them on in 90 days or less. 
there's a reason why McDonald's does not serve hot dogs. They could serve hot dogs any day of the week, but they don't. Right. And so they're, they were smart that way and keeping it, keeping it as simple as possible. Um, and so, so that's number one. Number two is can my franchisee get cash flow positive in six months? Can they be making money or feel like they're making money in that first, in that first year? So um, if you if you could put those two together and you can have a franchisee that could be up and running in 90 days, cause I can train them and they're making money in six months, you know, uh, and I get it. Franchisors look for the uh, candidate that's liquid, can handle, can make it for a year. But the reality is, is we don't know all that many people that can make it for a year or would want to go for a year. So we want to be careful there. We want to make sure that we can get them up and running, cash flow neutral or positive within six months, and we can train them. Otherwise, we're going to spend all of our resources continuously training and retraining that franchisee to be successful in our system. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And and uh, you know, so two other things I want to ask about on the franchise side because it's interesting for people. Uh, you know, one is, I, I I guess I'll I'll make the first one as as maybe a comment and ask you to expand that because I I don't do franchise law, but I've definitely had clients where you know we we sort of help them and then bring in a franchise attorney uh, to help them as their businesses have, have gotten to that point. And, and one of the things that, you know, they, they sometimes don't realize and this is what I'd love you to comment on, especially if they're going to be involved in actually running the franchise business as opposed to bringing someone else in, is that running a franchise business to do X is very different than running a business that does X. They're two different businesses. No question. No question about it. They are, they are hugely different. And, um, you know, in some ways it could be good if depending on the type of operator that you are. And in some cases it can be very restricting because you are restricted. Um, you, could be, you could be running a franchise in an area that places a very high value on your service, but you're locked into certain pricing and you can't, price, you can't increase your pricing, you know, yeah. or you can't offer what would be very complimentary services because you're not allowed to do that. You know? Right, on the fran- right, so that's on the franchisee side, right, where you're restricted by obviously right, the yep. agreements. You know, like, like you know, yeah, if, if a thousand customers come into your, your McDonald's uh, franchise and ask for a hot dog, you can't just decide you're gonna serve hot dog because there's a demand in your, in your area. Um, what I'm also uh, asking about and talking about though is on the franchisor side. So like, you oh, know, right. if you, you, you run, you run an, a, you know, a restaurant and now you're gonna franchise that restaurant or you run a, whatever it is, and you're gonna franchise that. I mean, a lot of the, the, the time you spend, you know, I mean, now you're in the business of selling franchises and servicing franchisees as opposed to, you know, making food and servicing clients, right? It's a training company. You've opened yeah. a training yeah. and intellectual property company. That's yeah. what you've done. And, um, and, and for everybody thinks, oh, franchising, that would be the total eaching. That would be the holy grail. But remember, when you open a franchise and you let somebody else run your model, you're giving away 93% of every dollar that comes in. And oftentimes the margin you make, we have a client that has a handyman service and he's operating at a 40% gross, 20% net margin, which is really high. I'm, I'm, and I said, listen, David, don't be in a rush to franchise this. You are crushing it because you, you're going to go from keeping 20% of every dollar to 7%. You know, right. so don't be in such, don't, you know, so, there are some instances where you want to be careful because you might grow and scale, but you are giving away a lot more dollars. So you're operating a totally different business. You're no longer, if you were a restaurant, you're now a restaurant training company. Um, and, you know, it, it is a, it's a totally different animal. 
totally different animal. And listen, there, there are other uh, uh, ways to go, and I'm not uh, recommending them necessarily over franchising. It depends upon your circumstance. But, right, you could open multiple locations on your own and hire people. You, could bring, you can partner with local people, you know, where you have joint ownership of, you know, uh, and, and expand the concept without it being a franchise. Um, you know, so there, there are ways to go, and there are benefits and, you know, and, and detriments to each of those uh, structures. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So you do have to go in, you know, the expression in the franchising world is every business could be franchised, but not every business should be, should franchised. be franchised. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, this is yep. this is great call. And I feel like, you know, there's so much else we can talk about. And, you know, it's why uh, our, uh, our guests who are great like you are definitely going to come back at some point. Um, but, you know, we, we do have um, uh, some limited time here. So I want to I want to uh, start bringing this to a close. Um, so before I ask you my final question, uh, I just wanted to make sure I know people got a huge amount of value. Uh, and, you know, listen, I, I, I know call personally, I know some of the companies that he's, he's worked with as a coach, and, uh, and he consistently provides phenomenal value uh, to people. So you definitely want to find out more about what he does. So if people want to uh, know more about what you're doing. Uh, what's the best place for them to find you? Just go to carlgould.com, and that's the gateway for all the things that I do, and you can find me there, and that'll start the conversation between the two of us. Ah, that's awesome, Carl. So listen, folks, um, you know, it's uh, it de- definitely, definitely check Carl out. Like I said, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, this is one of my guests who I, who, who I personally know, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I, I know him, and a lot of people I know know him, and, uh, and only great things. So, so Carl, my final question for you is, uh, which I always ask on the podcast is, uh, as you know, because you know my book, Authentic Negotiating, and you've, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've uh, been at events together, and I've spoken, and you've spoken. So, um, you know, authenticity is a big value of mine. And for me, authenticity isn't about external morals or integrity. It's about that internal alignment with our inner truth and having our businesses, our deals, and our lives uh, come from that, uh, that that true place, from that alignment. So uh, I, I, I'm curious as to um, what authenticity means to you and how it impacts uh, the way you run your business, the way you coach your clients, uh, the way you do your deals, the way you live your life. So yeah, it's great. So I think we're aligned in a lot of ways on this. For me, authenticity is be yourself because you are enough. You, you don't have to be anyone else. Everyone else is taken. Just be yourself. Um, but lay it on the line. If you're enthusiastic about working with somebody, you can say, I really love the idea of working with you. It doesn't, you know, some people say, well, that'll put you in a bad negotiating position. I don't believe that. I can still love the idea of working with you and then say no and hold on to my standards. So, but to me, it's just be real, put yourself out there and, and just tell people what, what you're all about, what you're, and what you're, what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And then do what you say or darn near kill yourself trying. <laughs> to me, that's what it's, that's what it's all about. I love it. I love it. I love it. And, and listen, I know in your, uh, in your coaching, you get to support people to do that and live the lives, you know, and, and create the businesses that are aligned with what they want. So that's, a, that's a, I, I know that's one of the things you really enjoy. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. Excellent. Excellent. So thanks for being here. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor. Other than that, the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. 
Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.